Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. More remote workers are complaining about isolation. The latest on the Gabby Petito story. Ontario's COVID-19 vax port is causing issues. The Ticats hit the midway point of the season on a high note. Is election reform on the way in Canada? And imagine having a universal charging cord for all your devices. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Pleased to be joined by Paula Allen, Global Leader and Senior Vice President of Research and Total Wellbeing with LifeWorks. Paula, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, and good morning to you as well. LifeWorks examines uh, the relation between uh, presenteeism, which is uh, working while you're not feeling too good, either mentally or physically, and productivity. And, well, the results are probably not too surprising. 54% of respondents are doing their job when feeling unwell at least one uh, one day per week. That's a lot of people, isn't it? That's a, that's a very significant proportion of people, and it's an increase from prior to our pandemic, our collective pandemic experience. So if you if you really kind of step back and think about it, that's more than half of the population once a week, at least, and some or more, every week is working while unwell. So this is a huge red flag in terms of just the health of the overall workforce and definitely it impacts productivity. And that 54% is an increase from 40% before the pandemic. Wow, that's uh, that's quite the rise, 14%. And, and you mentioned it, it does impact productivity. And, you know, w- when you're not feeling well and you're, not, and you're at work or you're working from home and not feeling well, it'll still impact productivity, obviously. Are employers more aware of presenteeism now as opposed to before the, uh, before the pandemic? My fear is actually they might have forgotten about it a little bit. I mean, there's so many issues that have come to the forefront with the pandemic. And for the portion of the workforce that you can't see, you know, you don't think necessarily think about these things. And that's why we brought it to attention. There's so many changes that have happened in the workforce. We've seen the impact on mental health. We've seen the impact on people, even willingness to seek Uh, professional help for mental health issues and physical health issues. We we know that the workforce is struggling uh, a a fair bit, and it's reflected in these numbers. So there really is a strong call to action to support health and well-being by organizations, but also for individuals to realize that this is not, quote unquote, the way it, it should be. It's not normal. Paula Allen is a global leader and senior VP of research in total well-being with LifeWorks. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, I referenced remote workers or those who are working from home. We shouldn't neglect that segment of the workforce because they're having some difficulty as well. Yes. Yeah. What we found is, again, overall, um, you know, we've we've had a, a big shift, and a good portion of the population is working from home now. We're in a hybrid situation, and one of the things that's changed is our sense of belonging in the workplace and with our employers and with our colleagues. So, not you know, even though we're in contact, uh, we're still not having those kind of in uh, in person shared experiences. And some organizations and some individuals are better with making maintaining that kind of digital contact than others. So right now, that sense of belonging is 65% of the population. And pre-pandemic, it was 73%. Hmm. 
and we're finding less belonging, um, more isolation uh, from those who have been working from home full time or even in a hybrid situation than those who are seeing their colleagues face to face. The uh, latest uh, mental health index from LifeWorks also uh, paints a picture of how parents are feeling these days, and and it's not so great as well. 64% of parents report working when feeling unwell at least one day a week, compared to 53% of non-parents. And they're not only feeling the heat, if you will, at work or feeling unwell at work, but they're also dealing with potentially kids going to school or learning remotely or being in and out of school because of COVID as well. Yeah, the strain on parents has been extraordinary over this past while. Uh, so, you know, parents are not only dealing with everything that everyone is dealing with, which is, you know, the change, uh, the risk, uh, you know, a little bit of loss of a sense of, of control, a little bit more isolation in terms of how we live our, our, our day. But you're also dealing with the care and control of another human being. So you're, it's amplified because you're also taking on the experiences of your child. You also have the practical challenges in terms of schooling. So right from the very beginning, we've seen parents as one of the hardest hit groups in terms of their mental health and well-being. And it's showing itself. So, you know, that same strain is, is I think, what we're, we believe is driving that, that increase. And I think the, the main thing is that there's some very practical uh, supports, you know, flexibility, additional resources, information that parents need to help them get through it because their, their strain has been extraordinary. Well, certainly, hopefully, uh, the next time around when we uh, get the latest or the next mental health index from LifeWorks, we'll, we'll see some improvement. Uh, I'm holding out hope. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping everyone listening is uh, going to be on a better plane uh, in this pandemic, and hopefully as more things open up and people return to work, we'll get to that uh, better place. Paula, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks again to Paula Allen, Global Leader and Senior VP of Research and Total Wellbeing with LifeWorks. Uh, We had Jeanette Smith, the city manager for the city of Hamilton, on uh, the uh, show yesterday, and she was describing uh, Hamilton's uh, back-to-work plan, the return to the workplace uh, COVID-19 framework. There's businesses and companies um, around the world who are working on this, implementing this, getting ready for this, chatting with their uh, staff to get a sense of what they want to do. A lot of of the chatter, a lot of the discussion is how do employees feel some – like the fact that they can continue to work from home. Some appreciate the opportunity to have that hybrid working model, and there are some, and I'm not sure how big of big of a piece of the pie this is, but there are some that definitely want to go back into the workplace. They liked being at home initially. Hey, this was you know something new, something different. Uh, they had to find their new routine. It was a challenge that they rose to, and uh, but now a lot of those people, or at least some of those people, want to come back to the physical workplace because, yeah, they feel isolated. They want to be part of a bigger team. They're probably sick of Zoom meetings uh, or Teams meetings. Working remotely presents a unique set of challenges, and I haven't been in that position. I've been in the office basically since day one of the pandemic, and uh, I understand. I've been chatting with a lot of coworkers and a lot of family and friends who are working remotely, and uh, they say, hey, you know, initially – it was new and somewhat exciting, and there was, you know, a different twist to things, uh, but that wore off fairly quickly, and they wanted to be back in a team setting and a team workplace, so hopefully we can get there very soon. I, I have my doubts on whether 
everyone will come back and everyone will go back to work, uh, so much so that we've seen an impact on real estate to that end because people realize that they're never going to physically be back in the workplace five days a week. It might be one or two or three, and uh, they've decided to move to a more affordable space. Uh, That has certainly uh, caused uh, an impact in terms of uh, price escalation as uh, all that money from the GTA has now dispersed around the Golden Horseshoe. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Riggs Amperin on 900 CHML. Thanks to be joined now by Dr. Michelle Cambolis, who is a Canadian-based mind-body health specialist, a registered therapist, meditation teacher, and an acclaimed author and speaker who has been practicing for more than 20 years. Good morning, Dr. Cambolis. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Rick. Thank you for having me on. We're chatting about uh, a real heart-wrenching story that has come to us uh, from the United States, uh, but it is really making news uh, around the world, and that is the story of Gabby Petito. Uh, For those who Mm -hmm. have not heard, uh, a a young woman who was out traveling with her uh, boyfriend uh, throughout uh, the United States as they were for lack of a better term, van life influencers, you know, vlogging, um, uh, telling stories about their travels uh, across the U.S. Uh, But uh, she has come to an unfortunate uh, ending in her life and a rather tragic one. Uh, Her her body found in a Wyoming park. Uh, Her uh, boyfriend, Brian Laundrie, is still missing at last check. Uh, but we're putting two and two together, and obviously, you know, she's lost her life in a very violent way, we believe. Uh, this is obviously going to impact a lot of women because they can, you know, relate to uh, violence, to uh, thoughts or words of hatred uh, being suppressed and uh, and all that in a nutshell. Um, how do women cope with a story like this? What are they thinking right now? What are you thinking right now? Well, that's such a great question, an important question. And, you know, this story really speaks to a truth about what many women face every single day. Every woman can in some way relate to the undercurrent of fear that they could at some point be victimized. So women are constantly left mitigating dangers while at the same time, you know, trying to quell our our own fears. And often um, that undercurrent is very unconscious. So when something like this happens, you know, a devastating loss, um, like the death of Gabby Petito, um, it brings front and center the the concerns that, that we live with on a day-to-day basis. It is really, you know, unfair or sad, really, that women are told to be on the lookout for potential danger around virtually every corner. It's, I can't fathom living that way because, you know, I, I'm a guy, you know, white man in my 40s. I go to my car late at night. I don't really think about danger lurking around the corner. Women from coast to coast to coast and around the world don't have that luxury. And so important that, that men understand that when, when we walk into um, an elevator and we're, the, you know, one woman walking into an elevator with three men in the elevator, we have a very visceral reaction. If a man walks into an elevator with three women in it, it's a very different situation. So we're actively taught from an early age to walk home at night with a friend for protection, to hold on to our drinks in pubs and restaurants for fear of being drugged. Um, And what we don't often realize is that women are most often at risk in their own homes statistically. So almost one in three women across our globe have faced intimate partner violence. So education is so important, understanding what to look for, how um, uh, domestic violence develops, and also ensuring that we're doing everything that we can 
to bolster our resources and supports to to women in order to begin to address this very, very um, critical problem. We're chatting this morning on Good Morning Hamilton with Dr. Michelle Cambolis, a Canadian-based mind-body health specialist. You also have a new book that's coming out, uh, When Women Rise, Everyday Practices to Strengthen Your Mind, Body, and Soul. How will it help women? So in When Women Rise, I lay a foundation for everyday practices that we can use to manage our fears. And a lot of it means, um, you know, really empowering ourselves, knowing that we really do have a choice in terms of how we manage our lives. And so, for example, in this situation, if you find that you're feeling overwhelmed and, um, and really riddled in fear, it's important to take a media break, um, move your body, learn some practices of, of meditation, practice deep breathing, and support yourself with habits um, that can really take your mind from fear to a place of calm. So with our daily choices, we can really foster a life that is um, founded on uh, an empowered state of calm or, or the opposite, which has a devastated devastating impact and can rob us of our well-being. So um, When Women Rise supports women um, to cultivate a life of well-being. We're pretty much uh, out of time, but I do have to squeeze in one more question. There's also 25 Mm -hmm. QR codes in this book, and that's like having a therapist in your pocket. That's a, a really neat idea. Well, it was so important to me that women have access to these practices anywhere and anytime. So, you know, if you're in a parking lot waiting for your child to come out of school or have uh, an opening to, to your day, then you can connect with a meditation or a breathing exercise or an, another mind-body health exercise to really um, amplify your well-being. Well, I'm sure this book is going to be a big hit. It's probably going to help a lot of women. So congratulations on that. And thank you very much for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you again to Dr. Cambolis. There is a, a new development. There have been several new developments in this story, but there is a new development in the case of Gabby Petito. Investigators have issued an arrest warrant for her fiancé, Brian Laundrie, but reporter Mona Kosar-Abdi says... It's not for murder. New insight in the Gabby Petito case. Now that a federal arrest warrant has been issued for her fiancé, Brian Laundrie. An indictment filed in Wyoming claims Laundrie committed fraud by using a debit card and PIN number that did not belong to him and charging more than $1,000. The indictment not revealing who the card belonged to or what the card was used for, but it does reveal the charges were made between August 30th and September 1st, just days after Gabby is believed to have died. Uh, The search, by the way, for Laundrie continues continues in a a Florida nature preserve. This is about um, um, 25,000-acre sized preserve. Um, Just an extraordinary story on, you know, how it happened, or we don't know quite yet how it happened. The autopsy results haven't come in yet, but we do know that she has died, um, and uh, he's still missing. And uh, there was an incident, uh, we heard uh, this the other day, that um, uh, in a restaurant where uh, a bunch of people, including the hostess, a waitress, uh, told CNN that there was an argument between Laundrie and Petito. And uh, in several instances, Petito was so distraught that she left and returned to the restaurant several times. Um, so you got to feel for, obviously, the people in that restaurant who, by the way, didn't call any authorities. That probably would have helped. But the police officers that stopped their van initially, or at least the van was on the side of the road, and they were checking things out and talked to both Laundry and Petito. 
Tito. Another instance that uh, her life could have been saved. Just a very tragic story. And uh, I'm sure there will be more developments in this story. And when they come about, we will update you on CHML News. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Ontario's vaccine certificate system already having an effect in the fight against COVID-19. We heard in the news that Hamilton Public Health reported a spike in vaccinations on Wednesday when the new Vaxports came into effect. So that's great news. However, the new rules are also creating waves for businesses. There's at least one restaurant that has closed indoor dining on the Hamilton Mountain that I know of. You you may have known of uh, some others as well. Um, And uh, this restaurant saying it's closing indoor dining so it doesn't have to deal with the politicalization of this issue. Uh, We've learned that Toronto's St. Lawrence Market also closing indoor dining services to avoid screening customers. Rocco Rossi is the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and he joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rocco. Hi, Rick. Thanks for shining a light on this. Uh, Well, it it has to be uh, a light on this issue because this is an extremely... Uh, you know, precarious situation for some businesses because the impact on businesses, on restaurants, as we're hearing, is real. What are you hearing? Well, there's no question, as we've seen in every jurisdiction around the world that has put in um, put in vaccine certification programs, one, as you've pointed out, uh, they've led to spikes in vaccination. So the entire community is made um, safer by that development, which is much to be desired. Two, there are always uh, growing pains, and particularly uh, in our case, because we have a two-stage introduction of the program. The first, which is just the the pieces of paper, and then um, the QR code and the, the more streamlined version later in October, which hopefully will help to deal with uh, with some of these issues. But what I also want to add to those stories of individual businesses that have had issues is I actually received more calls from businesses and organizations that want to be added to the vaccination uh, process that aren't currently in the list because they'd love to have, in effect, the, um, the legitimation and the protection of having government um, uh, put in the the requirement as opposed to them trying to do it in order to provide for the safest possible environment for their employees and their customers. From a cost perspective, do we have any idea how much this new system is going to cost Ontario businesses? Uh, we don't yet, but one of the things that we need to be doing, and we've been calling on the government, um, just leading into the federal election, Prime Minister Trudeau promised a billion dollars to the provinces to assist in the rollout of uh, the vaccine certification programs. And we certainly expect that uh, Ontario should be asking for its share of the, the funds and distributing them to small and medium-sized businesses to help with the additional costs uh, that occur, whether from a manpower standpoint or as the QR code comes in to have uh, scanners, readers, so that you can make the process far more efficient uh, in terms of handling the incoming people. Premier Doug Ford has said the certificate system will hopefully allow the province to increase capacity limits sometime soon. Should those limits be expanded now? 
Well, we've seen both Quebec and Manitoba go to um, uh, virtually 100% capacity in those businesses, and that certainly uh, would make a, a, a ton of sense. Um, and look, as soon as the uh, the data shows that, we fully expect that that will happen and we're calling on it to be done as quickly as possible because while the system, and, and let's be clear, no individual step that any of us have taken gives us 100% protection. It's all about adding additional layers um, to make things as safe as possible uh, and um, and so, you know, th- as we do that, as we're acting responsibly, those businesses should be rewarded by being able to use their capacity fully. Rocco Rossi is the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Um, in terms of uh, indoor capacity limits, some restaurants are uh, basically canceling indoor dining. Do you expect more to do so? I expect there to be a bit of reversal of that as we get into um, colder weather. Right now, those with patio capacity um, are maximizing that because you don't need uh, to use the certificate because, as we all know, it's far safer and far less possible to transmit outside than inside. And so people are trying to maximize that where where possible. But clearly, um, in order to um, uh, in order to operate in the in the colder months, and particularly as capacity limits inside uh, increase, I expect to see uh, that that flip, particularly once we have the QR codes and it's faster to process guests coming into. Uh, venues like restaurants. Some people expect this system to be in place forever. Do you feel the same? No, not at all. I totally agree with the uh, the premier that uh, this is going to be uh, temporary and absolutely should be uh, should be temporary. Uh, the Blue Jays and Maple Leafs making some news in terms of wanting and planning to boost capacity at their venues. If they're allowed to do so, other businesses should be allowed to do the same, right? One hundred percent. And again, it's something that we're calling for, that we're seeing in other jurisdictions. You've seen it, you know, New York, which is quite a bit ahead of of us, is already opening up its its theaters and its venues, concert venues to full capacity based on the science of of having everyone uh, fully vaccinated coming into uh, into those venues. And uh, look, again, it doesn't give one hundred percent. Um, but uh, but we're, we're we're operating in layers of how to reduce uh, risk uh, to the lowest possible level. Rocco, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us, and uh, enjoy your weekend. Stay positive and test negative. <laughs> That's a great adage. Thank you very much. Rocco Rossi is the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Hamilton Tiger Cats recording a few ups and downs during the first half of this year's abbreviated CFL season. We've hit the halfway points. The Cats are 4-3 and three in first place in the East Division. I'd like to welcome uh, Ticats head coach Orlando Steinauer to Good Morning Hamilton. Uh, coach O, what words come to mind when you reflect on the first half of the season? Uh, adversity. 
uh, and just flexibility. That's really what, uh, and also proud, you know, and proud re- re- really reflects uh, uh, just what I am of the organization and um, especially the players, but everybody involved. It's it's a, a new season with a lot of new quote-unquote rules and things like that. Uh, we battle a lot of injuries. Uh, we started out on the road, so that would be the reference to adversity. But, uh, hey, we're right here, so uh, um, I'm pleased with where we're at. Definitely not satisfied, but, but definitely pleased. Flexibility is a good word, too, because the roster has been certainly flexible because of the injury situation, but the roster was built that way um, and has you know worked in spades. You guys aren't 7-0, and but you're at least over 500 and are playing probably your best football of the season. Yeah, the record the record obviously is a reflection of of all the tests that you've taken, if you will. Um, it's the things that we've gathered in between uh, that that uh, really resonate uh, for the people uh, behind the walls before we go out and play each week. Um, I thought we've grown and and matured and and like I said, went through a lot together. So we've been able to bond and you know ultimately the game comes down to execution on the field and the product you put out there. Um, but we've given ourselves a position to uh, the first and foremost thing is, is always to get into the playoffs. And, and so that's always the goal to start. The injuries have been a concern, certainly. Uh, and I know you don't play uh, next until October 2nd when uh, Hamilton hosts uh, Montreal. Uh, what is the status of players like Jeremiah Masoli and other guys who we haven't even seen this season, Braylon Addison and Devere Posey? Right, so I, I think the the quick answer is that uh, they're they're healing. Uh, so their injuries sometimes are are about not just pain tolerance, but uh, they're they're just really about time. And uh, we all know with time, you can't speed it up or slow it down. So you're kind of at the mercy of it. So some injuries just have a different timeline, and then if there's any type of setback in between, you know that that obviously delays the time. Um, and so that's that's kind of where we're at. I think all three of them are trending in the upward direction, and that's a that's a realistic statement, not just a, a positive outlook. Um, they've been participants in practice and getting better, so uh, they'll definitely suit up for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Uh, I would imagine before this season uh, is over. Another big weapon I shouldn't have left him out was Brandon Banks, who's missed the last uh, couple of games. So hopefully he's on the uh, that upward trajectory as well to come back soon. Yes, I know Tiger Cat fans will be happy to know that Speedy <laughs> is, uh, is also in that group. Uh, we're chatting with head coach of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, Orlando Steinauer, here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Your next three games are all at home, where you've won 11 straights. That's three off the record of 14 from 1957 to 59. Talk about your, your play at home. It's, it, it's not necessarily a different team. Obviously, it's the same team. But you play with a ferocity. The defense is playing at an elite level. The offense getting the job done. Special teams doing their work. Uh, it's a it's a different cat, so to speak, at home. Well, the record would indicate that. But you know, in all of those games, you know, a couple of games, I would you know honestly say that the the balls kind of bounced our way. You, you need some of those type of breaks. Uh, we haven't blown everybody out at home. There's been, I'd say, a lot of those games decided within a touchdown, or or close to that uh, it's definitely an advantage to play at Tim Hortons Field our fans are amazing uh, they show up um, they're loud when we need them to be loud and 
and they calm down uh, when when our offense is on the field. And you know, our players, you know, they they feed they do feed off the energy. Um, but at the end of the day, you still have to go out there and execute. And like I said, every game was not a blowout at Tim Hortons Field. It's just the records ended up favorable for us thus far. What has it been like playing through, practicing, uh, game planning during COVID? Well, it's just a lot different. Um, you know, it'd be a half-hour talk show on its own, but I'll just say in short <laughs> that just the Zoom meetings every day are, are different. Uh, you lose the personal touch with the players and, and that sort of thing. But that's been the normal since, since training camp. So I think everybody's fully adjusted there. And then the other challenge, the tangible things are just, you know, who's going to be up each week, right? When you go on, you know, usually three-day practice weeks, and in some of our cases it's been even shorter, um, you know, just trying to put game plans together and then not breaking them down too much in practice so that they're fresh for the game. There's always that fine line and that kind of that, that mix that you're always kind of searching for. So uh, it's definitely a challenge and a little bit of a juggling act, but to me it, it just – we just embrace those type of things. That's what I'm most proud of, um, you know, with the way our environment, the way our environment's created is, is we embrace adversity and those type of things. And uh, we're a no excuse organization and we just go to work. Seven games up and at least a seven more to go. Um, looking forward to the second half of this season for the Tiger Cats and how they do in uh, the CFL. Coach, uh, thanks for the time today and uh, good luck the rest of the way. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks to uh, Coach O for coming on uh, the show today. By the way, Hamilton's next game, October 2nd against Montreal. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. So we've just gone through a 36-day federal election. We had the votes, of course, on Monday. We had advanced voting, mail-in voting, of course, voting on Monday as well. There is a call, and and we heard this even in the previous election campaign, to reform the election process. But there's also a call to tweak the nomination process. And uh, there is, um, you know, some discussion in this regard and whether or not this will be a, a, a pro or a con. Our next guest is a, a research manager with the Samara Center for Democracy, and her name is Adelina Petit-Vorieu. Adelina, good morning. How are you? Hi, good morning, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. So what's the call being made in terms of uh, tweaking the party nomination process? What are you looking to do? Right. So first of all, um, just to remind our listeners, party nomination contests determine the political party's candidates in an election. And so um, each federal election is actually a series of 338 local elections um, with voters choosing who will represent their constituency in the House of Commons. But before election day or before what happened on Monday this week, each party has to decide whose names to put on the ballot for each riding, you know, even months or years before the election. And so to do this, local party associations hold what are known as nomination contests to determine who will be their party's candidate in the next election. And our research at the Samara Center for Democracy has looked at nomination contests since actually um, the 2004 federal election, but our latest research is digging into the 2019 federal election cycle and who was on the ballot in 2019 and how they got there. And we've found some pretty disturbing trends. And so we think um, there's room for improvement. 
One of those disturbing trends is that um, nearly four out of every 10 candidates are directly appointed. So there really isn't a race, so to speak. Yeah, in some cases, it's not really an open contest at all. Um, The results um, indicate that many nominations are not living up to their democratic potential. So when comparing the nominations in 2019 to those in the 2015 cycle, um, political parties did much worse on nearly every metric that we looked at. So that included the proportion of candidates who were appointed, so were directly added to the ballot without a without an actual nomination contest. Um, when the nomination contest did occur, um, you know, we looked at the competitiveness and we also looked at the length of the contest. And so for every party, the share of candidates who were appointed surged in 2019 compared to 2015. Um, so there were many fewer nomination contests than during the, the last election. And when the contest did take place, you know, we saw few to, fewer competitive nominations. So there were many times in which a, a race, so to speak, only had one candidate running. Um, so they won by acclamation. And then when it comes to the timing, um, you know, the, the length of the contest shrank dramatically. For example, the average length of a nomination contest for the Liberal Party in the 2019 election cycle was just 10 days. It doesn't really scream democracy, especially when people are appointed. The uh, nomination process is shrinking. It, it seems like parties want to have their people in place and not really have a race. Is that fair to say? Well, there is um, horror stories, you know, every election that um, political parties use kind of their central control and lack of transparency to favor certain candidates over others. And so it can really fuel, you know, uneven um, rules and um, kind of lack of transparency can really fuel the perception that some contests are manipulated to favor one candidate over another. We also hear from uh, the research that uh, not many women are a part of this process either. That's right. Nominations are also a barrier to improving diversity in Canadian politics. So we know that um, lack of clarity around rules and the fact that uh, rules often change last minute can only really help those who are already a part of kind of the insider political field. Um, It can be much more difficult for political outsiders, political newcomers to, to make their way in. Um, and in terms of women, um, you know, we've actually seen a, a, an improvement over time since 2004 in terms of the number of women who ran for nomination. And they're just as likely to win as their male competitors in a nomination contest. But women make up such a lower proportion of nomination contestants overall. So, you know, we haven't even hit 30 percent of nomination contestants across all parties in the last, you know, six federal elections, those haven't, you know, women haven't even made up 30% of contestants. Wow. Our guest is Adelina Petit-Verieux, a research manager at the Samara Center for Democracy here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Does the research uh, indicate or suggest or even analyze whether or not uh, changes uh, could strengthen this system or this process? Yeah, there are many options of how we can make sure, you know, the foundation of our democracy is is a bit more robust. Um, first of all, parties have a, a huge role in this. They could willingly change their rules around nominations to make them more predictable and accessible. So instead of, you know, using different times and different ridings to run these races, these nominations 
should, um, you know, happen on a fixed date ahead of each election as much as possible. Parties could remove fees for entering nomination contests, should make the rules apply equally to every contestant, regardless of, you know, whether one is, is trying to be reelected or not. Um, but reporting requirements for parties are also currently pretty lenient. You know, they only need to report whether a contest was held to give the names of the contestants and the name of the winner. So we don't even have the information um, of how many people voted in these contests and how many votes each contestant received. So we should probably make that more in line with what the public expects from election results, which is to have these kind of numbers. And we can tweak the Canadian Elections Act to amend, um, to require parties to provide more information. And lastly, if parties you know, don't take the steps to improve nominations themselves, then we might need to set out in law key details about nominations, such as the length and timing, you know, to make sure that the minimum standards are, are, are there. And if parties can't be trusted to run their nominations in a transparent way, then it might be necessary to, um, you know, reduce the, re- the rebate of election expenses that parties can receive if they don't meet certain targets or to review the Elections Act um, to operate an oversight and complaints body. Basically, there's, there's a lot of ways that we can improve this, um, but the first and the easiest is for part- political parties to shape it from the inside. Fascinating research. Adelina, really appreciate you uh, shedding some light on this uh, topic. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. That is Adelina Petit Verrieux, the research manager at the Samara Center for Democracy, um, shining a light on the nomination process and some of the changes that uh, should happen to improve the process. Get more women, more women involved, more minorities involved, get a more structured uh, framework as well. And um, uh, who knows, it might lead to better politicians. And don't we want some of those on our landscape? Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The European Union is requesting that telecom companies create one uniform charging cord. That's like that's like winning the lottery. European Union announcing yesterday it plans to require smartphone companies, the smartphone industry, to adopt a uniform charging cord for mobile devices. And that is really going to, if it comes to fruition and happens here in North America, will delete any possibility that you're going to rummage through your drawer or look under your bed or wherever you keep your charging cords and uh, find the right one. Because I think most people have couple of different devices in their home, whether it's a Samsung or Apple or another device, and they each have their different charging cord. So let's ask our guest here this morning on Good Morning Hamilton, Carmi Levy, a tech analyst, how he feels about this. Carmi, good morning. Welcome to the show. How are you? Great to be here, Rick. Thanks so much for having me. As I said, this would be like winning the lottery, having one charging cord for all our devices. Oh my God. Every time I travel or I even I, I leave the house and I'm packing my bag, my backpack with all my technology, it drives me just absolutely over the edge to when I realize that I've got to set aside an entire compartment just for all my charging cords, cables, blocks, and they're all different. And then when I get there, I have to take them out and there's this giant rat's nest. Uh, and then, of course, inevitably, you know, I, I, I picked the wrong one or I left one at home uh, and I'm, you know, basically, you know, you know 
you know, I, I don't have an option. And so, you know, this is long overdue. We've we've had what we like to call proprietary or unique to to, to particular devices, uh, chargers and charging blocks for decades. Uh, and and the reason we've had that is manufacturers like to to tell us that oh this is you know ours is better than the competitors. It's 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 how we stay com- uh, competitive. It's it's innovative. Uh, there's nothing innovative about unique chargers because when the device reaches end of life, that charger becomes landfill, and millions of tons of e-waste are 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 going to landfill for no reason at all. And so the European Union, um, to its credit, finally forcing the industry to do what it should have have done years ago, which is move toward a common standard, so that no matter what device you're using, smartphone, tablet, laptop, digital camera, whatever it is. Uh, you just plug in that USB cable into the same block and everything will work. And you don't have to throw it out when you get a new phone uh, because you know it'll work with your new phone too. And it won't go to landfill. So everybody wins, even if some of the manufacturers might gripe a little bit in the process. Companies are going to have two years to abide by the new rules or adapt these new rules. What's the likelihood that this is going to take effect in North America one day and hopefully one day soon? I call it an absolute certainty. And the reason being is the, the EU tends to lead the world when it comes to progressive legislation around technology. So, for example, uh, you know, misinformation, data privacy, security, uh, data stewardship, all of these pieces of legislation have originated in the European Union and then eventually spread around the world. Uh, and so it's, it's inevitable. If you're a company like Apple or Samsung and you're doing business in Europe, where they're forcing you to have all of your devices be compatible with USB-C, this new standard, well, then why would you have one standard for Europe and one for the rest of the world? You just you just say, okay, we're just going to make it global. So it's only a matter of time before we see similar legislation here, but we won't even need to see the legislation because once it goes into effect in the EU, you're going to see a very rapid changeover. Anything that isn't using USB-C cord, like I'm staring at my iPhone now that uses a lightning cable, that's going to switch over to USB-C to fairly quickly. In fact, the rumors have already been flying for years that Apple was going to be dumping its lightning cable. This is just going to accelerate the process. Our guest is tech analyst Carmi Levy. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Do you anticipate companies like Apple and Samsung, two of the heaviest hitters, to appeal this? Can they can they do anything to work around this new rule in the EU? Uh, it's it's a question of you know what do you get out of it if you do and you know Apple of course has a bit of skin in the game they invented the lightning cable and they were hoping it would become a universal standard uh, you know there's a reason why those cables cost more than say an equivalent USB-C cable is because it has additional circuitry in it and Apple then gets to charge companies for the right to use that technology and that's one of the reasons why lightning never quite took off Apple of course has grumbled a little bit saying it's going to stifle innovation and you know, we're not going to be able to introduce newer technologies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Truth of the matter is Apple doesn't have a leg to stand on. I think they're they're doing this for PR purposes more than anything else, but eventually they will fall in line too. In fact, if you look at some of Apple's products, they're already using USB-C. The higher-end iPad Pros have switched over to USB-C, and every MacBook uh, a Pro, MacBook and MacBook Pro laptop that they sell has a USB-C charger as well. So I think Apple will find a way to make money from this change or this opportunity, and they'll fall in line too. They're not going to challenge. That's what it boils down to, the uh, the moolah. We've had our universal remote for eons. It's uh, time to have a universal charger charging cord for our devices. Carmi, thanks for the time today. Enjoy the weekend. 
Great being here, Rick. You as well. Carmi Levy, tech analyst, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.